Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. And now, enjoy our latest episode. It is an unbelievable and profound bond that this person is saying, take my story. And it's even more profound when they're saying, take it and put it in the New York Times. And getting it right terrifies me. Freelance reporting gives you the freedom to choose the stories you'd like to cover, but also creates the burden of constantly promoting yourself to stay afloat. Freelancing can be exhilarating, challenging, rewarding, and unbelievably frightening all at the same time. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Michael Venutulo Montavani is a freelance writer who lives in Chapel Hill, North Carolina with his wife and children. He's also a musician and spent several years touring in a van with his band, The Everymen. He's been a lot of places and written a lot of things, and he wrote to us saying he wanted to talk about how he accidentally started a career as a journalist. Michael, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having me. So, an intriguing pitch like that. Tell me, what's your story? We've got lots of different people who get into journalism. Some deliver it, some accidentally. You're accidental. So tell me, how'd you get into journalism? Well, so growing up, my mother was a, a writer, not by trade. She wrote in college at, at NYU. She wrote for a small paper called the Gramercy Park Herald. And then she was accepted into Columbia's MFA program, but she deferred to support my father as he went to medical school against his wishes. He wanted her to go. And she said, no, again, as I said, before we started this, my mother was on one hand, a bra burning hippie. And on the other hand, an Italian American traditionalist. So for her to go support her husband was, was something that she felt she had to do. And of course she said, I'll always, I can go back. I can go back. And she never did. She ended up teaching special education in New Jersey's public school system for, you know, decades and, you know, passed away before she ever had the chance to, to pursue it. But she was uber talented, taught me pretty much everything I know, you know, wrote for the high school paper, wrote for my college paper, got a job straight out of college writing for a local paper in Jersey City, but really wanted to get into the record industry. I, I never really set out to be a, a writer or a journalist. And so got into the record industry, spent many years working at record labels in New York City, had a little band on the side that eventually we got signed to a label ourselves quit our jobs, went on tour, you know, toured around the country relentlessly for a couple of years. A little before my son was born, when my wife and I knew we wanted to start a family, I stopped playing in the band, got back into the record industry and realized I was so burnt out on the music industry. You know, I'd been doing it at that point since playing music since I was a kid. And then, you know, in some professional capacity or another for almost 15 years. And I just needed a break and, and I really had no idea what to do. I figured, hey, you know, while I try and figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, let me just try and sell a story here or there to try and make ends meet, help my wife. You know, we didn't have kids yet, so our, our finances were, you know, our costs were pretty low, all things considered. We moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is infinitely less expensive than New York City, where we lived for many years. And so I just had to make a little bit of cash to kind of help, like I said, make ends meet. And things started to snowball, like, really quickly. I think within the first year, if not less, I had my first New York Times story, which was in the style section and a story about, you know, things that were happening in the South. 
Oh, New York Times style. I mean, if it was the front page for your first story, well, maybe that would be a story. But anyway, continue on. That's right. And so I thought, well, first of all, I had been contributing to local, you know, alt-weeklies, local glossy magazines, which I like to say, you know, we're like the ads for dentists outnumber actual copy, you know, 10 to 1. But that Times piece was, A, my first taste of actual money and my first taste of like, oh, like, maybe this is a thing. Maybe this is a real thing that I can do. And yeah, so just continue to pitch and continue to uh, hone my kind of pitching craft and refine how to do it. Got about a thousand no's for every yes, but eventually started getting more yeses. And I still get about a hundred no's for every yes. Yeah. And soon again, was contributing to the times more land of story in national geographic. That's a tough sell. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and really just kind of, you know, again, with the unending support of my wife for the first few years, which were quite lean, although she was also in graduate school at the time. So in hindsight, I'm not exactly sure how we made it all work, but we did. And yeah, and kind of fast forward to today. And it was it was the same with my band. It was like, as long as there was some kind of forward momentum, as long as there was that I knew something was happening. And every year for the first, I think, three years, I was doubling my income again which was not a lot. So doubling it was still not a lot. But that it showed that progress was the thing that kept me going. I love doing it, but I don't think I would have done it if this is going somewhere. This is not going nowhere. That was probably, I think, about five years ago. So I've been at this for about five years. So progress, forward progress. That's a great motivator yeah <laughs> if you want to keep going well and it's hard it's hard because it's just a business of no you know it's a business of no in the freelance world i, I like i said it's no exaggeration it is an exaggeration to say i get a hundred no's for every yes these days but i would say most of my stories rarely do i land something with with the first pitch rarely yeah there are great freedoms in being a freelancer but man you know the rejection is a real issue. I kind of want to make this both informative, but also a a scared straight for, uh, <laughs> as it's 2023, I, I realize maybe scared straight is, is a phrase that we need to rethink. But when we were growing up, the, you know, there were TV shows and there were things they showed kids about prisoners yelling at, at young people who had gone wayward. So at some degree, I want to, you know, tell people about freelancing or you know, hear what you have to say about freelancers, but also make sure they leave with the understanding that there's a lot of hard, hard things you have to face as a freelancer. But yeah, and I was kind of predisposed to it coming from playing in a band full time, because you want to talk about a business of no's, go, go try and make a living as, a, as an artist, a, a musician in my case. I mean, you know, it, a it dreamer. Was, yeah. I mean, it's, it is, it's, it's just for every yes you get, You've got, you know, so many no's. And what I learned how to do early, long before I started this, was to, A, was to kind of revel in the yeses, you know, to say, you know, this is great. I got to win. And B, to recognize that it might be a while before I get my next win. And sometimes it's not. I mean, just last week I had a, I had a story in Wired and then four days later I had a story in GQ. That rarely happens. Usually it's there's a bit of a more of a gap between those kinds of wins. Yeah, you, you steal yourself to the no and you realize you know, recognize, hey, like it's it's not me. Maybe, maybe it is. I mean, if you're not if you're not very good at it, but most of the time, it's it's not what they need, and you just have to keep going and keep moving forward. And and a good example is is both of those stories that I just mentioned, Wired and GQ. I've been pitching those stories. Wired, I've been pitching that story for at least two years. GQ, I've been pitching that story for probably closer to four years. 
and you just have to find a way to make them land. And yeah, just, just get used to the no. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about pitching. Cause that's, I mean, that's really kind of the heart of all of this. What do you do to try to get an editor interested in, in the work you do? Well, what I realized over time and over trial and error, cause again, like I said, a, I didn't, I've never taken a writing class in my life, so I don't know what I'm doing, which is a, a blessing and a curse. Well, you know, something, I mean, the, the evidence to the contrary is that you're publishing pieces in some very, I wanted to say important, but, but big yeah, publications. Yeah, well, so somebody must recognize or at least appreciate the way you write. Well, I should say, I didn't know what I was doing. Now I do. Let's, Let's just say now I have a better idea of what I'm doing. I came out of the gate pitching the New York Times. I think that you absolutely should go big if you have a story to tell and if you could tell it. But I feel like if I had maybe more of an education or a background in these things, well, let me build my clips first so I have something to build. That's not true. Editors want good stories, plain and simple. They want good stories told well. And I was ignorant to that fact blessedly so and so I, I was out of the gate pitching GQ pitching Esquire pitching you know the New York Times but I think what I learned over the years and over the you know now hundreds and probably thousands of no's and passes was how unless you know the editor and have worked with him or her the pitch is your writing sample and you have to tell the story in the pitch as compellingly as if not more so you know one thing I, I read recently was the idea of the obituary and how it's one of the most thrilling and difficult jobs in writing because you have to distill a person's life into a very, very small word count. And how do you do that? How do you tell a life story in 900 words? And it's kind of the same thing. Like I'm pitching two, three, four, eight, ten thousand 10,000 word stories in three paragraphs. <laughs> so how do I tell you, the editor, that this 10,000 word story is going to work when I only have one email to get your attention and that email had better be short and it had better be to the point. <laughs> yeah. You know, I started as a freelancer, but I got the opportunity to be an editor at several different publications. And, you know, once you get in that seat, you begin to understand and you apply some of your own experience as a writer pitching something to you, you, you begin to see a lot of different types of pitches and you very quickly see you know, people that, yeah, th th this doesn't seem right for us. You know, you don't really kind of understand what type of story we're going to do. You know, I, I'm not very impressed either with the clips that you send me or the pitch. And I always felt the shorter pitch was better. You know, don't waste my time with a, you know, like a five page, you know, explanation of what you're doing. What is the topic? How does it relate to my audience? how is it different than what I've done, you know, previously? And if you hit on those points, I think that was my experience as an editor. Yeah. Another element in which I learned a lot from was the more successes I had, the more publicists add me to their press list, which is kind of annoying. I mean, I get it. They have to do their job, but all of a sudden, once I started contributing to Condé Nast Traveler, which I've done probably like four or five stories for them, I started getting added to all these press lists and, being included on those press lists has helped me really, really realize how to and how not to. Like what catches my attention, rarely do I act on a press release. I'm interested in finding my own stories. You know, sometimes I do, sometimes, but I could probably count on two or three fingers how many of those press releases have turned into me pursuing stories. But my point is, is that some are immediately trashed and some catch my attention right away. 
And so for me to kind of diagram those, to use those tactics in my own pitching has really been helpful. Because of that, I don't unsubscribe from any of them, even though I'm going to use maybe less than 1% of them. But no, I, I, I think the way that I cultivate, yeah, is relationships with editors is getting to know what what their interests are, what they're, because otherwise you're not going to, you know, no one's ever going to sell me. Not never. I just did one. And of all the clips I've done, it's the one story I've ever done about, it's not even about music. It's about a musician, but it's not about his. In fact, the editor had to ask me to go back and actually write about the music because I don't like writing about music. But if you know me, you know that I'm not going to write about music. So it's the same with an editor. If I know that this editor is not interested in X, Y, or Z. It's, it's a waste of everyone's time. And if I'm wasting that person's time, all that's going to do is leave, you know, because again, I'm not John Clark. They're going to recognize my name if I keep emailing. Like, my name doesn't get lost in the pile very easily. So if I keep emailing this, you know, basically spamming an editor with pitches that I know aren't going to work for them, then they're never going to want to work with me. So, and I think what's important to note about that too is the idea of a story can take many shapes where you place a story often dictates the shape that it takes and so if i am pitching a story to i could have easily written that original new york times styles piece for a different outlet and it would have been a different story and i'll give you a perfect example i did a major feature for wired last year about the fall of Kabul, and it was a like a i think an eight thousand word you know center page feature centerfold feature and i had been pitching that story for about a year, I was pitching it while the evacuation of Kabul was happening, but a lot of editors were scared off because the evacuation was getting a lot of news coverage and they were asking, you know, why is this new? I said, well, I'm not writing news. I'm trying to write a feature. And everyone Tra passed. A travel story about Kabul. Exactly. And so everyone passed, but eventually I then reframed my approach. I said, let me make this about the one year anniversary and let me focus on what other element can I focus on? And I eventually I landed on the element of the technologies that these people were using to get Afghan civilians to safety. And technology, Wired, boom, like pitched it to Wired, landed the story, biggest story I've ever written, biggest payday I've ever gotten, you know, and has led to now a relationship with the editor there, which has led to other stories and, and stories with other outlets that he's put me in touch with. But it was all about, hey, maybe this isn't a story, a human interest story, feature, whatever. This story has to center tech. Well, no, all stories have to center human stories, but this story centers the technology. And so let me find the tech outlet. And I'm sure at some point when they got that pitch, they were like, oh yeah, this would be interesting. Let's use this cobble story as an example. It's something you said that you've been pitching a while. Where did the story come from? Had you done any reporting before you started pitching? So, yeah. So since I started writing full-time, one of the first side gigs I took was helping to edit this, they call it a human performance brand. It's called Softly. And I don't work with them anymore, but the brand is is owned and operated by current and former special operators, Green Berets, Marine Raiders, you know, people of that ilk. And so I became friends with a lot of these guys through helping to edit their site. Through that relationship, I became friends with a gentleman named Worth Parker, who himself has transitioned out of the military. He was a 27-year veteran of the Marine Corps and is now himself, you know, at the early stages of a very successful writing career. He's already co-written a book. He's written for, you know, major outlets, and he's one of my favorite writers around. He's a very talented guy. 
so this coalition developed as Kabul was falling because the Department of Defense basically said, if you don't have a green card, you're out of luck. We have enough people to worry about. And a bunch of retired soldiers were like, well, we can't just leave these people. A lot of them were interpreters. A lot of them were fixers. If we just leave them, these people kept us alive while we were there in many ways. So if we leave them, it's it's just, I can't live with that on my conscience. So they just banded together. And it was regular, regular Joes, like regular guys who weren't high-ranking military. And then they kind of linked up with guys like Worth Parker and people who are high-ranking military. And they formed this coalition. One's called Task Force Dunkirk, so named after the famous World War II evacuation. The other one is called Team America. And it was through Worth, who is a personal friend. And I was scrolling on Instagram and I saw him working to get these people out of Afghanistan. And I sent him a text. I said, how can I help? What can I do? He said, write, write this story. That's how you can help us. So that was the tip. I wasn't successful in writing the story at the time, in large part because Worth's role, he was termed the Minister of Information, and he was getting them coverage on ABC, New York Times, NBC, CNN, Fox News. He was doing a great, amazing job, and that is, again, what scared a lot of the editors away. They're like, the story's been told. But it was through him that I got tipped, and I felt guilty that I couldn't get it done. Eventually we did. And, you know, they're continuing to get people out. It's led to another story. I can't give details, but with a major, major magazine, one of the major magazines that should be out later this summer. So that thing has led to what will probably be two of my biggest pieces thus far. So what is the thing that inspires you that, that gets you jazzed about reporting? I love the work, man. I Now I, I teach a class, which is, again, hilarious considering this is the first writing class I've ever been in is the one I'm teaching. But that's one of the first and most important things that I tell my students is like, you have to love this work because A, it's long and it's arduous. B, it's lonely as hell. Like, I know this is audio, but if you're listening, like I'm sitting here, you know, in, the, in my wood paneled room and I'm in this room most of the time. The instant you see your byline in print is that it's an instant. And that feeling goes away as fast as it comes. The winds can be so few and far between that, you know, where you have to find the joy in this is actually doing the work. And, you know, what keeps me going is this fascination of, of telling stories and the idea that there are so many stories. You know, when I was a kid, it used to be with music and it still is with music, but to a lesser extent these days. But when I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to listen to every record ever made. You know, I was obsessed with rock and roll and obviously that's impossible. But now it's kind of a lesser version of that idea that like, I want to tell as many stories as I possibly can in, in whatever time I have. A, on one hand, that's terrifying because you never can, but B, it's thrilling. And just the idea of, you know, being able to do that. Also, the motivation for me is the fact that I I vowed when I was a kid that I would never have a quote unquote real job. And I still don't consider this a real job. I spent years and years working in the music industry, which I didn't consider a real job. And by that, I mean like, I'm going to do something, you know, that I love to do and that I get up in the morning thrilled about and, and something that like, you know, 13 year old me would be like, Hey man, you became a pretty cool guy. And then obviously the fact that I have a family now, and this is probably the only way that I know concretely how to make a living. <laughs> yeah. When we started, we haven't talked about this. You've got a, you've got a regular gig that sort of helps you between the, the longer assignments. Tell me about that. A couple of months ago, and I don't remember how, because somebody recently asked me this as well. I, I don't remember the nexus of it. It may have been Twitter, but I recently deleted my Twitter for, I think, obvious reasons. I'm not saying anybody should or shouldn't, but 
I hooked up with uh, one of the editors at Bicycling Magazine, and I'm a passionate cyclist, and I'm an advocate for getting more people on bikes, and I love bike racing. And so, yeah, so I got linked up with them, and they said, you know, how do you feel about cranking out, you know, daily news? And my first and only training was that one year that I had working for a high-volume urban newspaper in Jersey City called the Jersey Journal. Shout out to Danny Klein, who's my very first editor. But that was on the job training of, hey, go write this thing, get it to me by this time. You know, you're not E.E. Cummings, like get me the story and come back with it. You know, and I remember my very first day on that job, somebody had eviscerated, murdered a prostitute and and eviscerated her. And there's a road in Jersey City called One and Nine. It's Roots roots One and Nine merge. Everybody calls it One and Nine. There's a dead prostitute on the side of One and Nine. Like, go write the story. And I didn't have a car. I was living in the city. I was 23 years old. And I like walked to the this crime scene and I don't want to write about crime. I didn't, but that was the job. And so having that skill kind of nailed into me immediately on pursuing this endeavor, even though I took 15 years, 10 years away from it, however long it was. So yeah, I told the, the editors of Bicycling, yeah, if there's one thing I can do well, it's I can get you something clean, correct, and fast. And so, yeah, so now I write about I mostly write about bike racing, the racing industry, but I write about a lot of stuff for them. But it's it's daily news. It's three, four, five, 500 word hits about what's going on in, in the bike world. Sometimes I write a little bit longer. I wouldn't call them features, but, you know, right now I'm working on a 12 to 1500 word piece about safety in bike racing. But for the most part, it's this guy signed a new contract with this team and Having that, you know, I'm a very early riser. So I wake up at 5 a.m., 4.30 sometimes. I go to my desk. I knock out the story. And it's before my kids wake up. I take them to daycare. And then I come back and I could focus on some of the, the bigger projects that I'm working on. That gives you routine as well. Has there been any, any story that you've written that scared you? All of them. All of them. And for two reasons. Well, for three reasons. One. I, I'm not going to get it done. No. Yeah, anyway. Well, well, that is one of them. That is one of them. Every time I sit down, and right now I'm at that juncture with that big story that I can't really talk about, but I've done all the reporting and now I have to sit down and write it and I'm terrified. And it happens to me every time. I'm not going to know how to do this. But in the back of my head, I know that I'm going to know how to do this. And I know that me going through this little freak out is just my, my process and saying, I don't know. I can't do this. And what am I doing? The other thing that terrifies me is the constant fact that every time I publish a story, I think it's going to be the last story I ever published. No editor is ever going to commission a story for me again. And that's it. And you know what? Hey, I've had a good run. Five years. I published with some of the biggest outlets around. Great. Like, way to go. Now, I guess I'll go work for a record label again. I know that's not true, but that's kind of the process. But what scares me the most with every story I write is people are trusting us with their story, which is in my opinion, one of the most important things. A person's story, there's nothing more important than that. And that person trusting me with that story, and I don't mean this in the way that we bastardize the word because I hate the bastardization of the word as much as I'm guilty of bastardizing it, but that trust is awesome. It is an unbelievable and profound bond that this person is saying, take my story, and it's even more profound when they're saying, take it and put it in the New York Times, where people all over the world are going to read this story. And getting it right terrifies me. Again, in the back of my head, I know that I'm going to get it right. A lot of it stems from the very first big story I did for the New York Times. I made the mistake of saying that there was really nothing happening in a certain area of Birmingham, Alabama, before 
these designers and artists came around. And what I meant was there was nothing really happening by way of commercial, retail, et cetera. But I didn't clarify that. And there was things happening. And what was happening was a black neighborhood was there. And it was really messed up on my part. And it was a huge miss. And I don't ever want to do that again. That's a good lesson to get early. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And no, I, it is. I got plenty of hate mail for it. And rightly so. I'm sitting here thinking about that compact that you have with your source to the larger conversation going on about trust in media, et cetera. And, and the fact that people don't really kind of understand why we do what we do. You know, if people understood that, that relationship with the source, I mean, how seriously we take that, that is the thing that drives us to, to make sure it's as correct as we can make it because you know, that's a betrayal. And, you know, there have been cases where, you know, reporters have poorly covered something and, you know, that, that's a betrayal and they are bad journalists. They're bad writers. But for those of us who put the effort in and pay attention and, and take what we're doing seriously, I mean, that's almost a holy thing. I used to look at it the other way around that I would write a story and I, I would be just sort of embarrassed when people would say, thank you. This really helped me or this changed, you know, this made things better for me. Which, you know, is a nice feeling, but to what you said, it really goes back to that moment where you're establishing that relationship and building that trust with your source. Yeah, and as cheesy as it sounds, like outside of holding my babies and spending time with my wife, like when somebody tells me I got their story right, that's the most profound experience I have these days. It used to be kind of the, the metaphysical communion that happened when I played music with other people, and I don't get that that much anymore. I don't go to that kind of ethereal weird place and so that's kind of been replaced by you know when i file a story when i publish a story when the when the subject says like you know you got my story right they thank me but i don't need to be thanked i don't want to what's important to me is is yeah you got it right i mean it's a holy experience yeah well i'm gonna actually wrap this up because i think we probably both have writing to do <laughs> i know i do but this has been great michael thanks for coming on the podcast yeah thank you so much for having me and I wish you all the best, and yeah, appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.